next met with Dr. Patrick Wen, who reviewed with me new developments in the use of targeted agents in GBM. As you know, last year, Bevacizumab was approved for treatment of recurrent glioblastomas, and that's sort of been the dominant feature of the field for this past year. So at ASCO, the updated data from the randomized phase two study that led to approval was presented, and the response rates in the mid-20% and the six-month progression-free survival of about 36% held up, and the average survival of nine months for both arms also held up. So there was no major change in terms of the outcomes. And also, I think, more importantly, no major changes in terms of the toxicity. So the rates of hemorrhage, which has always been a concern, has remained fairly low at 2% approximately. And also there's a low rate of venous thromboembolism and bowel perforation. So I think the important aspect of that presentation at ASCO is that there are no major new toxicities that we need to worry about. Another presentation at ASCO was of a VEGF receptor inhibitor called XL184. There's tremendous interest in the field in that class of drugs. And this particular drug inhibits not only the VEGF receptor R2, but also MET. One of the things that people have encountered in patients receiving bevacizumab is that there is a subset of patients that when they recur, recur with a non-enhancing infiltrating tumor. And presumably this is because by depriving the tumor of VEGF, the tumor co-ops existing blood vessels and they get an infiltrating phenotype. So there's huge interest in the field in trying to find drugs that might prevent invasion and infiltration. And so this drug was interesting because there were preclinical studies that suggested that it might do that by inhibiting MET in addition to VEGFR2. This drug was active. The response rates were about 30%, which compares very favorably with bevacizumab. And the six-month progression-free survival is at least 26%. So again, it's slightly less than bevacizumab, but the data is not quite mature. I know that you presented data on this agent at ASCO. I don't know if there were any other presentations, but I know in your presentation you had, I guess it's kind of a waterfall plot, And it looked like most of the patients had tumor reduction. Yeah, I think over 60% of the patients had some reduction in tumor, but only 30% had a 50% reduction that would qualify for a partial response. I think the other good thing about this whole class of drugs, whether it's a VEGF receptor inhibitor or bevacizumab, is that by blocking VEGF, you significantly decrease the edema around these tumors. And so it's a feature of all these drugs that you can significantly reduce the steroid usage. And that, on its own, is a real benefit to patients. Now, this XL agent, is it a TKI? It's a TKI. And so it's multi-kinase, obviously. It hits a bunch of different targets. Yeah. The main ones are VEGFR2, MET, and RET. And what kind of side effects do you see VEGF, you know, hypertension type things? Yeah, they get hypertension, fatigue, some diarrhea. And then I think one thing that is troublesome for patients with this class of drugs is the hand-foot syndrome. That often results in the need to reduce the dose. Now, is this, I guess when I think TKI, hand-foot, one of the things that pops into my head is serafinib. Is it that type of hand-foot? It's somewhat similar. There's more blisters involved with this drug, but it's that type of problem. Were there any other major reports or just yours? Not from this drug. Right. So you had 195 patients, and were they all treated at the same dose? 
They were treated at two doses. The original phase two dose that came out of phase one studies was 175 milligrams once right. daily. Right. But this was pretty toxic. The majority of patients had to reduce their dose. So they decreased it to 125 milligrams daily. This dose is better tolerated, and patients stayed on it longer, and therefore the results were better. But it's possible that even further dose reduction might be useful because this is a very potent inhibitor of the VEGF receptor. So a lower dose is probably still going to be effective. Now, another thing that you showed was the use of corticosteroids and basically that it decreased while these patients were being treated. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that and what you actually saw clinically in terms of amelioration of steroid effects? I think this is the most striking thing about this class of drugs. The main cause of the peritumal edema is VEGF. And so when you inhibit VEGF, you can significantly decrease that edema. And that effect occurs within a few days of starting treatment. So it's quite dramatic. Within a few days, patient symptoms are markedly improved. And for many of these patients, you can fairly quickly taper down their decks and occasionally taper them off. And as you know, these patients are often cushionoid and have steroid myopathies. So in terms of improving their quality of life by doing this, it's a real advantage of this type of drug. One of the things I haven't been able to quite figure out with bevacizumab, and I don't know whether it relates to this agent and some of the other VEGF TKIs, is the question of, is the, quote, responses that you observe are they more edema effects or actual anti-tumor effects? Any way to know that? Yeah, that's a really important question and a really difficult question. You know, we measure tumor size by the amount of enhancement on the MRI. And this is totally a function of leakage of the gadolinium through blood vessels. And by inhibiting VEGF, you make the vessels less leaky. So there have been some studies where they've done scans at one day, and even within one day, the scans look a lot better. There's a lot less enhancement. And that's not an anti-tumor effect. That's just a radiographic artifact. So I think the whole field has struggled with how to characterize these responses and what kind of responses are meaningful. And the Response Assessment in Neuro-Oncology Working Group has come out with new proposals for guidelines on how to determine response And one of the things that is important is that these responses have to be durable. And so you need confirmation at least at a month. I think if the responses are durable, then they're probably real benefit. But responses that occur for only a week or two is probably an artifact on imaging. And I think the endpoint to determine whether a drug is useful or not, the responses are probably not the best way to determine this. Probably the six-month progression-free survival rate is more useful because if someone's progression-free for six months, then there must have been some benefit from the agent. But the whole field is really struggling with this aspect right now. And I know that you actually were the head of that group that you just referred to in the paper that I saw came out in April in the Journal of Clinical Oncology. I guess that was kind of summarized where you all were at least at the moment. So was it kind of the group's feeling maybe to focus more on progression-free survival rather than radiologic change or kind of both? I think right now the FDA still places a lot of emphasis on response. So because of that, I think the trials will still have to pay a lot of attention to response. But I think most people in the group felt that six-month progression-free survival is a more valid indicator whether something is effective or not. And another thing that comes out in this paper that I hear from every investigator is this issue of pseudo-progression. 
anything that the group came up with in particular in terms of pseudoprogression and this whole issue in terms of trial evaluation? So pseudoprogression is the phenomenon that occurs after patients have finished their six weeks of radiation therapy with temozolomide. They usually have a scan about four weeks later. And approximately 40% of patients will have a scan that looks worse. And half the time, it's because there really is tumor progression. But the other half of the time, it's because of radiation effects. And trying to separate out the two is extremely difficult. This phenomenon occurs mainly in the first three months after radiation therapy, although occasionally it can occur later. And so in this Arano criteria, we've suggested that patients within the first three months of radiation therapy should not be automatically assumed to have progression if the scan looks worse and probably shouldn't go on to clinical trials unless you can really prove its progression And by doing that, you can either do surgery and histologic confirmation, or if the tumor has failed outside the radiation field, then it's not a radiation effect. You mentioned the issue of the patient who has progressive disease on bevacizumab and this infiltrating kind of pattern slash syndrome that people are talking about. In your phase two study of the XL184, how many patients had had prior bevacizumab and what did you see there? I think patients going on study, about 10 to 20% have this infiltrating effect. And when they're on the XL184, I think less than 10% of patients ended up with this infiltrating tumor. This is also a big problem in the field. Up until recently, when you determined response in glioblastomas, you used the McDonald criteria. That's based only on enhancing disease. An important subset of patients fail with non-enhancing disease. It's not taken into account by the McDonald criteria. And so one of the proposals in the new RANO criteria is that you also have to take into account non-enhancing tumor progression. So it's both enhancing and non-enhancing tumor progression that you have to evaluate. And did you report response rates in that group too? So the response rates were pretty disappointing. There were very few responders. No patient was stable at six months. So kind of, you know, I hear this thing about people don't want to do trials in patients who've had BEV, and I guess for some reason they're resistant to therapy? They're a really hard group to treat. So the median time to progression is usually one or two months in this group of patients. In terms of this XL184, do you see it potentially becoming clinically available at some point in the near future, or does it have a ways to go? So it's only just finished phase two or it's nearing the end of the phase two. They're planning a phase three study, comparing it to CCNU, and so we'll see if that is a positive study or not. Are there any thoughts, and you kind of hear this in a lot of different tumors, I've heard it particularly in renal cell, about the possibility of combining two anti-angiogenic agents. Any thoughts about what would happen if you combine XL184 with BEV, for example? I think it may be difficult. XL184 has a moderate amount of side effects. And although BEV is pretty well tolerated, it may be that the combination would be too toxic. Even with renal cancer, for instance, combining BEV with sunitinib has not been possible. Right. They've tried in glioblastomas to combine bevacizumab with serafinib, and the combination doses are much lower than the single-agent doses for each. Sometimes it's kind of hard to tease out all the different TKIs that are available. And I know another one 
that you've been very involved with. You had a paper in the JCO recently, and then there was also you had an intriguing poster in the trials in progress section looking at sidernib with whole brain radiation and people with brain mets. What's the difference between XL184 and sidernib, and what do we know about sidernib at this point? Sidernib is a very potent pan-VEGF receptor inhibitor, and also it has a little bit of activity on PDGF. So it doesn't inhibit MET at all. It's a drug that's been developed for quite a while now for glioblastomas. There's been a phase 3 trial that's finished accrual, and the results should be available any time now. So we'll know very soon whether it's active in recurrent glioblastomas. There's a lot of interest in combining this drug with radiation therapy. There's a lot of preclinical data suggesting that this class of drugs might potentiate radiation therapy. And so that's the rationale for using it with radiation for brain mets. And there are also trials using this drug with radiation and temozolomide for glioblastoma. Again, I mean, from my simplistic point of view, I hear TKI, TKI. Obviously, they're hitting different targets. You mentioned MET with the XL184 and RET. Clinically, though, are they more similar or dissimilar? I think they're more similar. The most important thing for these drugs is that they inhibit VEGFR2. I think that's the main mechanism of action. These other targets may or may not help, and it's really too early to know for sure. How do the other targets affect toxicity? For example, MET and RET. I mean, I'm used to thinking about EGFR kind of toxicities, but what about MET and RET toxicities? I actually, I'm not sure what they do on their own, because I guess there are MET inhibitor trials, single agents, but I'm not familiar with the toxicities of those drugs. And getting back to sidernib, from a clinical point of view, how do you find patients doing in terms of side effects and toxicity? When we did the initial glioblastoma trial, that's the one that was reported recently in JCO, the dose was 45 milligrams a day, and that was hard on patients. But they've cut the dose to 30 milligrams for single agent, and that's much better tolerated. Patients still get tired and they have diarrhea. And I think the most striking thing is that the hypertension is very prominent. Prominent to the point that it's difficult to treat or usually easy to treat? You can treat it, but sometimes you'll need more than one agent. In fact, often you'll need more than one agent. What about RPLS? Do you see that with these TKIs? I think it's been reported with most of these drugs and also with bevacizumab. I think there might have been a case with sidernib, but I'm not sure. Anything else that's come out in the last six months in the field that, you know, from a practical point of view, not just in terms of GBM, but also brain mets that you want to comment on? I think when these drugs were first used, especially bevacizumab, there was concern that these drugs would make brain mets bleed. And now I think there are several meta-analysis looking at patients on trials who either develop brain metastases on bevacizumab or were allowed to go on trials with bevacizumab with known brain metastases. And the risk of hemorrhage in these patients is actually very low, in the order of 1% or 2%. So I think for most brain met patients, bevacizumab is a safe drug. I think they're thinking of trials using bevacizumab for brain metastases. Are there any situations where you think it would be reasonable to use bevacizumab for brain mets off-study? You know, one of the things that we're not really sure is how these drugs work, or whether they even have an anti-tumor effect. There was an interesting study from Rakesh Jain's lab published in JCO last year where they looked at sidernib on the growth of glioblastomas in animal models. 
and the animals lived longer, but there was no effect on tumor size at all. And so one issue is that in brain tumors, perhaps these drugs are mainly reducing the edema. And because the cranium has a fixed volume, reducing edema in brain tumors makes a real difference and you can live longer. Whereas reducing edema for breast cancer or lung cancer won't make much of a difference. And so for patients with brain mets who have a lot of edema and who are very symptomatic and there's nothing else you can do, these drugs might actually be helpful in that situation. You know, when I hear those discussions, I also get maybe a little discouraged that we're really not even affecting the tumor. Is there any strategies out there or any hints biologically in the long run about how we can actually attack the tumor cells? I think it's, for a lot of patients, it probably is an anti-edema effect. But when you have patients on these drugs who recur and are stable a year or two later, some of those patients, I think, have benefited from an anti-tumor effect. But I think you have to combine these drugs with other things. So that's why there's such a lot of interest in radiation and temozolomide for newly diagnosed glioblastomas. And there's also a lot of interest in combining these drugs with drugs that might inhibit invasion or other angiogenic pathways. So the XL184, I mean, I guess the TKIs in general, including XL184 and sidirinib, you're thinking was the main effect is VEGF2, but they also, at least XL184 supposedly affects invasion also? That's the hope, yeah. Is there some specific pathway that it attacks that theoretically is tied into invasion? I think MET itself is Met. important for invasion in gliomas. What about the use of bevacizumab, the one of these that is available right now outside a protocol setting? At what point are you integrating it into your non-protocol management? We always give bevacizumab to our patients at recurrence at some point. But because it's so hard to put patients on protocols after they've received bevacizumab, we tend not to use it at first recurrence. For patients who've just failed radiation and temozolomide, we and most people at academic centers would put these patients in trials first. And then if things don't work out, then they would go on to bevacizumab. Are there any situations where you would consider, of course, as you mentioned, this is being studied, maybe one of the hottest questions in clinical research is up front with temozolomide and radiation therapy. Any situations where you would consider that strategy off study? If the patient has a big tumor that can't be resected and they have a lot of edema and mass effect, in the old days, when you put these patients through radiation, they have more swelling and often they start to herniate and you can't get them through the radiation. You often have to stop treatment and they would go home with hospice. In this group of patients, adding bevacizumab, I think, really does make a difference. You help the swelling, they can get through the radiation and at least have a chance of having the tumor controlled. Obviously, bevacizumab is an issue in a lot of different tumor types. And one of the things that comes up in the other tumors is the question of prior thromboembolic events, prior arterial events. However, with GBM, you're looking at a really awful short-term prognosis. How do you approach that issue? You have a patient who clinically has a lot of edema, you want to use it. What kind of a arterial venous thrombotic history will make you say no? I think for our patients, because of the prognosis, it's not usually something we consider just by having a glioblastoma, patients have almost a 30% chance of having venous thromboembolism. So it's a really common problem anyway. And adding bevacizumab may increase the risk a little bit, but it's not huge. 
I think one issue that often comes up also is what to do in terms of anticoagulation when you're on bevacizumab. There's now, I think, a lot of experience with using low molecular weight heparin in glioblastoma patients who are taking bevacizumab. And the risk of hemorrhage is probably slightly increased, but it's slight. And so generally, it's still a fairly safe thing to do. Let's talk about your cases, beginning with your 48-year-old woman. So this patient illustrates the problem in terms of when to give bevacizumab and what to do after bevacizumab failure. She was a 48-year-old nurse who presented with some headaches and seizures and had a right parietal glioblastoma. She was treated with surgery, radiation, and temozolomide and did well for about 14 months and then relapsed. And she was treated with bevacizumab and had a good response for about seven months. Around the seventh month, she started to become very confused. And we did a scan on her. And she was one of the earlier patients that we had treated on bevacizumab. And instead of seeing a big mass, which was what we were expecting, we saw this fluffy enhancement scattered throughout the right parietal and occipital region. And on the flare, there was just diffuse flare changes suggesting that she had gliomatosis. So she was actually one of the first patients that drew our attention to the fact that when these patients recur, or at least a subset of patients who recur in bevacizumab, instead of getting a big enhancing mass, you just get this diffuse infiltration through the brain. And then that explained her confusion. So treating her after this was very difficult. We continued the bevacizumab and tried switching to different chemotherapies, CCNU, carboplatin, irinotecan, none of them really made a difference. And there have now been studies from several centers that have shown this. None of these standard cytotoxic agents make any difference. And people have also tried to add targeted drugs to bevacizumab at recurrence. And at least so far, they also really haven't made any difference. So the problem with treating patients who progress on bevacizumab is a huge problem. So there's a lot of work trying to understand the various pathways that allow patients to develop resistance to bevacizumab, whether it's upregulation of fibroblast growth factors, which would allow you to perhaps use a combined VEGF receptor and fibroblast growth factor receptor inhibitor, or whether it's upregulation of angiopoietins or stromo-derived factor 1-alpha. So there are a lot of trials that are planned or about to start that try to combine drugs like bevacizumab with drugs that block these putative mechanisms of resistance. And then the other big problem is because a lot of these tumor cells are infiltrating, trying to find drugs that affect invasion and infiltration has been a huge goal. But right now we don't have a lot of drugs that can do that effectively. So it's a huge problem. Do you have any sense in terms of whether or not, I mean, it seems kind of counterintuitive, but maybe I guess it's possible in some way the bevacizumab is fostering this infiltration, or maybe it's inhibiting something else that allows the tumor to sort of go its natural history? That's a really good question. So we don't know whether just by suppressing the angiogenesis, you're just letting the tumor infiltrate at the same rate that it would have otherwise. And because the patient's living a little longer, you get more infiltration, or whether it accelerates that process. I don't think we know. My own guess is that it probably accelerates it a little bit, but some of it is just the natural history of the tumor. 
But people know that when you isolate these infiltrating tumor cells, they're much less sensitive to apoptosis, and so they're harder to kill. So looking back at this 48-year-old woman, you said she was treated with Bevacizumab for seven months. What was her condition when you first started the treatment? And kind of looking back, do you think it helped her or not? Yeah, when she started, I think she had headaches and some parietal problems. And symptomatically, she was much better within a week of starting the treatment. And her quality of life was actually pretty good for that seven months. When the tumor came back and then she was confused, it was difficult. And that period didn't last very long because none of the subsequent treatments helped. I think drugs like bevacizumab increase the progression-free survival definitely. And that quality of life is good during that period. They don't need to be on steroids or on as much steroids and neurologically, they're better. One of the big issues is how much these drugs increase their overall survival, and that's a big question. What do you see in terms, this woman was on treatment for seven months. What's sort of the typical duration of treatment, and sort of what's the longer ends that you see? I think the median time to progression on bevacizumab is four to five months. But I have one patient who was treated on the registration trial in 2006, and she's still free of disease today. So there are occasional patients who do very well. I keep asking everybody in terms of bevacizumab and half a dozen different tumors about any thoughts in terms of predictors of response. Heard a little bit about SNPs and breast cancer, but not too much else. What about predictors of response in GBM? I don't think we have that. A lot of centers are working on this. You know, now that we can differentiate glioblastomas into different subsets based on expression profiling. One idea is that the mesenchymal phenotype of glioblastoma might be more responsive to VEGF therapy. We don't know that, but I know several centers are doing studies to see if that's true. Mesenchymal phenotype, what's that? It's a more aggressive, more vascular phenotype. And so intuitively, it would make sense that they might be more sensitive to anti-VEGF therapies. There's also a lot of interest in using imaging biomarkers to predict response to bevacizumab and similar drugs. And there's preliminary data suggesting that you can use diffusion imaging, looking at the apparent diffusion coefficients to predict outcome. And then Rakesh Jain and Tracy Batchelor have done work suggesting that if you combine DCE MRI with perfusion imaging and collagen 4 levels, you can come up with a normalization index that predicts response to sidurinib on day one of treatment. These algorithms need to be validated, and they're a little complicated to be used in clinical practice right now, but eventually, hopefully, you can get some more widely applicable imaging biomarkers. Reminds me a little bit of the work that was done, I think it was like six rectal cancer patients originally. I know Dr. Jane was involved with that. And Chris Willett, you know, the famous nature study where they did all these interesting tissue and imaging factors. And you mentioned, was it dynamic? Uh, yeah, contrast right. MRIs, yeah. What have you seen both with the TKIs and bevacizumab in your own patients in terms of acute, you know, changes that occur? Oh, it's really dramatic. So looking at vascular permeability and blood volume, even by the next day, there's a major change. So these drugs really do have a profound effect on the blood vessels. 
Anything that we haven't talked about today that you think would be something we should chat about? We've kind of covered my list of things, but any other topics you think are relevant to docs in practice? I think because of bevacizumab, there's now a treatment that helps patients, but it's both a benefit and a hindrance. Now that you can use bevacizumab, there's some tendency not to refer patients for trials till they've received bevacizumab. And unfortunately, that's too late. I think the field would be helped tremendously if patients, when they first fail, undergo trials, and then they can always return to get the bevacizumab later.